0: This is Jeffrey Colon, author of Disruptive Marketing, what growth hackers, data punks, and other hybrid thinkers can teach us about navigating the new normal. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Jeffrey Cologne, and we're going to talk about his new book, Disruptive Marketing, what growth hackers, data punks, and other hybrid thinkers can teach us about navigating the new normal. Jeffrey Cologne is a communications designer and social data expert at Microsoft. Prior to joining Microsoft in 2013, he was vice president of digital strategy at Ogilvy & Mather. Jeffrey has spent 20 years in various marketing capacities working for and with several of the most influential brands, including Red Bull, Spotify, Netflix, American Express, The Economist, Coca-Cola, and IBM. He spent a few years in the New York City tech startup world and several years in the music industry as... DJ Jeff, where he released over a dozen commercially available house music compilations. He's also worked with several high-profile musical artists, including Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, The White Stripes, and Moby. Jeffrey has written for or been quoted in various publications and media outlets, including Fast Company, The Guardian, NPR, Wall Street Journal, Billboard Magazine, Advertising Age, Digiday, The Los Angeles Times, and is an avid speaker on the global marketing conference circuit. Jeffrey... Congratulations on Disruptive Marketing, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug, for having me. Glad to be on the podcast. So I'm pretty sure you are now the fourth author on this show who's had a background in the music business. Oh, yeah. I I, I sense a trend here. We've had uh, Mitch Joel, author of Control-Alt-Delete, Jason Miller, author of Welcome to the Funnel, Get it? Welcome to the funnel. How to turn your content marketing up to 11. And Scott (laughs) Stratton, who's written Unselling and Unmarketing and all those kinds of things. So I should also add that a little bit of uh, Jeffrey Cologne trivia. You are not the first Lehigh grad on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, I'm not. Who who might have come before me? Mark Roberge from HubSpot, who is the author of the Sales Acceleration Formula. Ah. And the reason I mention that and this might be a good way to start, is Mark Roberge went to Lehigh. Guess what he majored in? Engineering. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Big surprise. (laughs) Lehigh, it's not only engineering, but it has a very strong engineering background and, and reputation. He trained as a mechanical engineer. And then he went and got an MBA at MIT and then joined HubSpot as head of sales. He'd never sold anything. He'd never been a salesperson. And what he did was he put their whole sales process, he, he started thinking like a quant, like a, uh, a mechanical engineer, yep. and he grew their sales like 6,000% in six years, and he followed a system. But can you explain why you mention uh, Lehigh and engineering in the book? You did not study uh, engineering there.
0: I did not, but Mark sounds like a typical hybrid. He was an engineer, but he has, you know, he's involved in sales. Mm-hmm. And I think Lehigh, at least to me, and I'm still heavily involved with the school as an alumnus.
1: And you're from Bethlehem, yes, where I'm Lehigh from Bethlehem,
0: is. Pennsylvania. So I'm actually a local that uh, went to the school. So uh, you know, grew up in in that whole area and really love the history of that area and how the school was founded. But um, you know, you have three schools at Lehigh, Not no different from many Ivy League schools or any universities for that matter. You have a school of engineering, you have a school of business, and you have a school of arts and science. And Lehigh, I think, really exposed me to being a complete person. How do I really wrap myself around Other fields or disciplines that maybe I wouldn't have been exposed to if I went to another school. So I was, you know, I took a lot of business classes, but I also took physics and, and calculus and, and some really hard math classes and statistics classes and was around a lot of engineers and how they think and how they view the world. Um, and I think that really sort of completes you as a person. And I, you know, it's interesting because I love, the book in defense of a liberal education, uh, because the discussion there is how do you really become a complete person, which is I think really the best step towards success in this in this you know era that we're in right now.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And I was a I was an English major, but yet I had to take a year of chemistry and calculus. And now <laughs> in modern marketing, I'm like, oh. Wow, I'm glad I actually did that. Uh, now it's it, it, you know it's became uh, even more relevant, and you talk a good bit about that in the in the book about math and and so forth. But let's start out and explain for the listener what tough mutter is, oh, and, yeah. and why it's an analogy for the world we now occupy as marketers.
0: So tough mutter was created by two MBA candidates at Harvard University, and I thought. When I first was told about it by a colleague of mine at Microsoft who said, you know, hey Jeff, you gotta come on this, you gotta do tough mudder with us. And I was new to Microsoft and experiences are always the best way to bond with people. So if someone says, Hey, we're gonna go out to this event, you know, you you do it because it's a social it's a it's a way to become socialized with others. Mm-hmm. And of course I, I'm really into running and I love fitness. And here I'm thinking, oh, this is just a mud run. Uh, this will be fun where, you know, you run through mud for a couple of miles from like a, a beginning uh, of the course to the end of the course.
1: Yeah, and I uh, I actually did that in the Army, so I have absolutely no interest in doing it now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, here I'm thinking like, oh, this will be a fun Saturday outing. Well, that's not what Tough Mudder is at all. It's not an individual experience where you just run through mud it's a collective experience where you're doing a lot of these challenges which are pretty insane if you want to think about it. Like you're jumping into a tank of freezing water and having to pull yourself out of it or have your colleagues pull you out of it so you you, you don't freeze up. You're scaling walls. You're jumping off 15 high-foot platforms. a lot interest, of
1: problem-solving along the way with the
0: group a lot of problem solving it it really is a group activity it's really a collaborative activity i mean you could do it on your own and tough mutter has events that individuals do but it's really about the collaborative it's really about the collaborative effort when you're doing it and the big thing and why i think it's a good analogy for modern marketing is you're constantly having to make decisions on the fly there is no right answer in what you do and a lot of it isn't one person saying, this is what we should do. It's, hey, I think we should do this. And then others go, wait a minute, let's tweak it this way or we'll do it this way in the moment while you're doing it. And I think that's what marketing is now because you are trying to change as customers change, as behavior changes. And all that changes in real time based on technology, communication systems, uh, the ability for customers to have a lot more control than they've ever had before.
1: Yeah, more like soccer now than American football?
0: Yes, I think I made that analogy as well. I loved the book Franklin Foer's um, How Soccer Explains the World, and I still play soccer, Um, and, and probably my wife... Uh, to to her detriment she's like oh geez you're still going to continue to play and i I think i'm one of those people who will play until i i am literally limping off the field one day you'll know when you can't yes
1: (laughs) but it's it's this real-time nature it's like um you know with with uh, american football or whatever you you know there's there's a series of plays whereas uh it's just continuous with uh with the soccer um Also, explain what you mean when you write that disruptive marketing is more of a blue book exam than multiple choice.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about going back to being in school or higher education where you're taking a class, let's say it's philosophy or political science, the answer you're going to give is going to be based on the context around you. If we asked someone to complete a question now, let's say, an essay question on, you know, how did the 60s influence the politics of 2016? Well, there's a lot of things that have happened this year that your answer is going to be very different than it would if you answered that question in 1996 or if you answer that question in 2026. So again, how do you look at the world in the here and now? what's contextually relevant and form that answer or that opinion because basically conversation is a platform we know that that's where marketing has gone based on all these communication platforms that we have based on uh, social networking based on uh, video remixing and 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 the, the ability to manipulate a lot of media so you know that's why I I want people to not think that there's a firm answer for everything it's really based on what's in the What's in the here and now, and and that really requires a different mindset for, uh, you know, for the discipline.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, let's step back and frame this explanation of disruptive marketing and describe this new world, (laughs) this new world without rules, as you call it. Yeah, you
0: know, I think the interesting thing is when we talk about how business operated for much of the twentieth century you were dealing with an industrial economy, so you were dealing with hey, this is how we put our product together, this is how we position it, this is how we ship it, and this is what customers can buy there was and maybe harken
1: back to the four p's of marketing
0: yeah there was you know there was almost like a it was really like a playbook, like a set vision of 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 rules on how you would go to market with, with with a product. Um, you know now you have digital products that can exist in a matter of days. You can code something that, you know, you can have a business up and running because of cloud computing that takes days, not years, to come to fruition. I mean, the interesting thing I always like to use the analogy right now. Of look at some of the companies and how quickly they have grown their business models that, you know, you would think, you know, how is that possible? Airbnb, Uber. I mean, even games like Pokemon Go. I mean, it was just released on July 5th. And in 10 days, you have more people playing that game than are using Twitter. Yeah, um, and the,
1: you, you, you go through the always refreshing. I think it's important to, to, to include this in a discussion where you talk about how, like, the S&P 500 years ago, companies might have been on there for 60 years. Yep. Now they're on there for I don't know ten. Yep. <laughs> the turnover is picking up a lot, and it, it's actually going to get even. Uh, the velocity is going to pick up even more probably.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of turbulence there. I mean, there's I think a lot of questions not asked in the corporate business world about what does the corporate business model look like for the 21st century. I mean, we've talked a lot about the future of work, but I don't think anyone's really talked about what's the future of the corporation. I think you still have a lot of people. On the top of these boards are CEOs saying, "Hey, it's business as usual." And I almost feel like advising them and saying, "But it's not business as usual. You're having a hard time keeping your best talent because they can go start their own companies with a fraction of, you know, their savings. They can they can um, have employees all over the world and be a global entity." They can create services that basically only need to take uh, one or two percent away from a bigger company, and they're they're sustaining. But the bigger companies are are crippled because of those new models. There's a lot of rethinking right now that needs to happen in the in the corporate business structure, and I just don't think a lot of people are leading that conversation. It's almost like I think there's. They're afraid to have the, those conversations right now because they're almost fearful of what may happen if they talk about it.
1: Yeah. And that's why, you know, you and I and probably a lot of marketers are dealing, we're, we're pushing up against this uh, resistance of, of inertia. And that's why you're, you're, the cover of your book is interesting because it's like a spray painted, like somebody, uh, some hoodlum. some neer do uh, spray-painted Disruptive on the cover of the book. But the book, for me, was sort of like throwing a stun grenade into a smoke-filled conference room. And there's a part at the very end where you talk about a number of people you interviewed, like maybe 20 for this one particular section, where you ask them are you dealing with this, uh, I think you call it the hippo, like the the highest paid person's opinion in the room or something That's like right. that? Yep. And these are smart folks you talk to, and, and can you describe what the, what the answer was? Oh, they're all
0: facing these hierarchies of people who say, you know, I have all this experience, I know what's best for the business. Some of them may be founders, so it's always hard to go up against a founder who sure. obviously they... They feel they know what's best for their business. Uh, many of them are not founders; they're working within larger corporate structures, uh, and everyone's facing the same dilemma, which is you know there's no real uh, ability for anyone to say, "Hey, here's the issue, and we need to solve for that, and here's how we can solve for that." You know, you have people actually saying, "Here's how we can solve for that," and the hippos in the room are saying, "No." That's just not what we're going to do, I mean, I faced that, Doug, in my own career when I worked in the music industry. I was that person who was twenty seven at the table in a conference room saying, "We should buy Napster. That's the digital distribution model of the future, and every person in that room said, "Please exit the room and get out of here right now yeah and of, you know i mean and, and and of course, if we had done that, you know the business would be worth probably six or ten billion dollars a year now it's only about four billion dollars a year and always dropping every single year because of streaming models i mean no one thinks i think ahead of the of the curve of where things are going it's like wayne gretzky said like where's the puck going not where is it right now
1: yeah and i i, I always have to when i when i brush up against that either uh... you know with clients or pro- more likely with prospects where we're, tra- we're trying to show them there's a whole new world out there um, Sometimes when they're sitting there with their arms crossed, I, I know what's going through their head, and it is as follows. <laughs> they're saying to themselves, let's see if this internet thing really catches on, because I lost my shirt in the 70s on Pet Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced I, that's what they're saying. That. <laughs> and that helps me. That's a coping mechanism, uh, yes. Jeffrey, to help me get through those meetings. Well, let's let's talk about the... As you describe it, the new personality of marketing success what what are what are some of those new things? Well, I mean, I think Carol Dweck, who wrote the book you
0: know Growth Mindset," you know said it best. I mean, you have to really have a culture in innately as well as within the organization you're in this culture of curiosity what is you know, what is really moving the world all the time? And not necessarily in marketing. I mean, I think marketers really have to think about holistically, what's you know what's the overall objective of a business? What's the overall objective that people want to do based on what your business objectives might, might do? I mean, there's always that uh, lack of integration businesses have where they'll say, here's what we have to offer, and people aren't really looking for that solution. I mean, you see it in tech all the time where tech thinks that they've solved all these problems and people are like, we don't need a solution for that. We need we need this solution and no one's building that. And mm-hmm. that's why you have so many of these applications that just, they make no sense. Like, I don't need an application that's going to reserve a yacht for me uh, so that I can go down to the you know the harbor here on the, on the sound in Seattle and 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 stream around. I mean that's only for a specific really really small audience, but I I think where tech misses a lot is you know you have a lot of people out there who utilize it because everyone has a mobile phone and is continuing to uh log on online across the world. You know, how, what are you providing for them that will help them, you know, enable or empower their 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 life. So I think that culture of curiosity is is really important. I think soft skills like socialization and collaboration obviously are really important. But you know, hard skills that we haven't thought about in the past, like video editing, uh, statistical analysis, psychology, behavioral sociology. These are things that are that are really important now. I think. I think. Um, I read somewhere that a lot of MBA programs are requiring their MBAs now to take philosophy classes. I think that's really important because. You should be thinking about what is the what are the long term implications of every decision that you decide to implement. We didn't we haven't thought that way in the past in business. We just would make decisions and then of course uh, bad things may have happened and we would just try to run away from them. We should be thinking about you know what our implications are with every single move that we do.
1: Mm-hmm. Jeffrey, there's a number of uh, call it stun grenades, call it Molotov cocktails that. As reading the book, I thought that you were, you were basically throwing these bombs. And they were, I, I think, intended to grab you know a lot of corporate America by the lapels and say, wake up. So now I want to ask you about some of these things. And the first one I want to ask you about is to explain is something that I, I, I'm sure gives uh, higher blood pressure to a lot of executives. And you say that marketing to generate solely revenue and profit is so 20th century. What do you mean by that? Well, again, if you look at how the blueprint worked for
0: marketing and sales for much of the 20th century, it was easy to go out, position a product, mark it up, sell it. Maybe you'd have one competitor. Maybe you wouldn't. It was very easy, whether you were a small business or a large enterprise, to to run your operation that way. That's why those companies were able to stay on the Fortune 500 for 60-plus years. Now you have a world of abundance, abundant solutions, abundant products, and new products being developed every day because the cost of making them is very, very low. I mean, in some respects, we've crossed a chasm. We've gone from almost this industrial era to this knowledge era to what I call this creative era because you can have two people like you and I come up with an idea. We don't even have to be in the same room. Develop that idea, bring it to market, start getting customers, and before you know it, it scales. That was very hard to do without a lot of money or venture capital, which was really required in the past. And if you think about it, many of these startups that have grown didn't really get a lot of venture capital up front. They bootstrapped from the beginning. It wasn't until later when people saw, hey, that's a big model that we should take advantage of, that they got funding. So I think any imaginary idea that we have now can come to fruition. And I think that's what keeps a lot of... um, you know that's what keeps a lot of corporate America, I think, uh, scared at night. Is they don't uh, they don't realize that they're not the only player out there anymore in the field that they're in. You know, I think there's a tendency of many to think, you know, hey, we have a lot of market share, and that, and thus we have a lot of revenue. Market share so, as
1: they define it.
0: Uh, market share as they define it, and we have a lot of revenue, so we don't really have to worry about you know marketing. We'll just continue to create good products and services. You know, my ideology like now Like Kodak. Is <laughs> like Kodak is a good example. I mean, the ideology now is no one has any, uh, you know, what what's the term called? I'm trying to grasp at the term. Like, they, they don't have brand faith anymore. Like, they... You know, in the past, my parents owned Oldsmobiles or you know, from gen- so like or general. Like brand motors. equity? They don't have brand, you know, people don't have brand equity. So like you could own something, but then if you find a better solution, you're gonna go to that solution. I mean, mm-hmm. we are in a very temporary society. Now, and it's I not think like they
1: hate the original, you know, Oldsmobile or the or the product. They no, just find something better. They find
0: something better. It's not, you know, and in some cases, if you think about like some services, you end up do hating the product, like airlines. Uh You're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to fly on this airline anymore. I'm going to go fly on another airline. And that's because people get bad service. So in some cases, bad service or bad customer relationship management drives people to another solution, of which is in abundance. And in other cases, it's just a matter of finding something better because there's a new alternative on the market. I mean, we didn't have Tesla 10 years ago, and now that may end up Eating away at every car company's market share, and and that's not the end of you know. Again, we can't think in a static mindset. That, that's not the end of you know that car manufacturer. I'm sure there'll be another company that comes on the the scene in the next couple of years that disrupts Tesla. So yeah, I mean all, it, you know,
1: you see this. I see it uh, like with Tesla. They want to open up some showrooms, and in a couple of states, I know Virginia and Texas are two of them. The car dealerships, you know, they have the laws written uh, such that uh, Tesla can't do that. That's right. And it just reminded me of marketers, like, you know, like you're trying to hang on to something, but it's, it's, it's ultimately going to go through your fingers. Uh, yes. Th- that's going to change. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Tesla comes along, and I th- I'm sure that all the car dealerships thought we are competing with other car dealerships. Well, actually not. They're competing with uh, Uber yeah uh, you know all these other kinds of things so um another question um can you explain uh, this is gonna this is gonna upset some listeners, but can you explain <laughs> why ads don't matter anymore as you assert in the book?
0: Well, think about it. I mean, when is the last time that you got excited because you saw an ad I mean I think the only time that people get excited are marketers themselves. Yeah, I think
1: the last time I got excited when I saw an ad was when I worked at an ad agency on Madison Avenue. (laughs) And I saw it on TV. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, no, that's not why people are are watching TV is to see the ads except maybe the Super Bowl.
0: I mean, advertising agencies are the least customer-centric you know companies out there. I mean, I worked for one for a long period of time. They don't think about how people behave. They just think about their own business model, uh, which is very selfish. It almost reminds me again of those executives back in the room saying, "No, we're going to sue Napster. We don't care about those <laughs> right. digital." You know, and I think, you know, I think I think the thing that you have to think about too is there's ad blocking technology that hasn't even really tipped mainstream and is continuing to get very large. So in the digital space, it's going to be harder and harder to for ads to be even served up. I think when we are on platforms like YouTube where you are, you know, you're seeing pre-roll ads, nobody likes that experience at all. They want to see the content that they've gone there for. They're they're always hitting that skip ad button as quickly as possible. The reason it doesn't matter anymore though, Doug, is because people have A shield now to advertising. Mm -hmm. Psychologically, we know we're being advertised to and we turn away from it. Even when I and it's changed marketing because 90% of people do their own research before they come to a decision now. And even if friends or family are influential others are saying, oh, hey, this is the solution you should go after. As humans, we want to make it, we want that feeling like we've come to that decision on our own. Absolutely. Or we've come to that decision collaboratively with a small group of influential people within our business because that's empowerment. It's not empowerment to be told, by the way, this is what you should be doing. Buy this now. No, Mm -hmm. people don't feel empowered. They feel empowered when it's like, oh, hey, I found this really new, this really awesome product my friend Kathy told me about and I tried it and uh it's really awesome and i'm going to tell everybody about it. Yeah. I you know i mean that's the world that we've always lived in prior to this period of time where we had uh what we call sort of this mass media advertising on radio and television and the early parts of the internet. I mean most of that is you know most of that i think people want to ignore a lot of us ignore sponsored Ads, even if they 're native within Facebook and Twitter feeds, um, all these platforms, of course, are trying to monetize through advertising, but the advertising that is is the most effective is is the messaging that doesn 't look like advertising whatsoever
1: mm-hmm. I think you also touched on something uh, that 's a big issue with sales now is you know sales people don 't want to be told by a salesperson this is what you 've got to buy that 's right people want to feel like they 're still discovering it, and that 's why you hear so much about modern sales, call it what you like allowing people, to, basically being like a buying guide for people, helping them along to make their own decision, because they're going to make their own decision anyway, and they hate being marketed to, and they hate being sold to. And just to add, <laughs> you know, I've been in the agency business for a long time. You were there. Uh, there's one part on page 10 where, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, reading this book was a little bit of a religious experience for me because there <laughs> were several times where I stood up and said, amen. And there's one part where you talk about why, agencies completely miss the boat. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's completely true, and it's the kind of thing they hate to hear. So that was a Molotov cocktail thrown to all our, all our good friends in the agency world. Hopefully, they'll they'll be able to, to pull through. Another question. Um, you say disruptive marketing and growth hacking will ultimately replace conventional marketing. Explain what you mean there, because I think that's yet another one where a lot of the listeners are going to hear that and say, oh man, I better figure out what disruptive marketing and growth hacking are.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about the fact that most of the world is moving toward marketing automation, what that allows one to do isn't to sit back and just say, the machines are running everything. Because you're ultimately trying to reach people and people are driven by emotions. I mean, this is the one reason why I think it's important to hire people with psychology backgrounds or sociology backgrounds or people who understand, you know, with humanities backgrounds, because they understand people and what motivates them at the end of the day, because you're still trying to get to, you know, decision makers that are humans, at least for now until, you know, maybe we get into some far off, <laughs> crazy future dystopia, but. Yeah, that'll be uh, in 18 months. Exactly. Um <laughs> but you know i mean we we're we're trying to reach people and i think it's really important to you know to have people who under you know have people on your team that understand the sentiment of what what makes others tick and growth hacking is really that intersection of engineering and marketing where you are and behavioral economics in some respects where you are almost tapping into Well, how do we get people to adopt something where it doesn't make it feel like we're trying to get them to adopt it? And we're tying in analytics, but at the end of the day, we're really monitoring their human, you know, their human behavior. I mean, the best examples of growth hacking, if we want to look at a few in in real life is whenever someone, you know, sends an email to you, Doug, that's like, Hey, I'm inviting you to this exclusive new network. And if you sign up now, you have the ability to take advantage of being connected to just these, you know, top 50 power players in this particular industry. The reason that works is because you're like, okay, this is exclusive. I got this from email
1: from a friend I trust. It's this not guy doesn't autom- seem to be from Nigeria. Ex- exactly,
0: <laughs> he's not asking for my bank account yeah. where the wire things.
1: Oh, I've been burned on that so many times. But go uh, ahead.
0: <laughs> and so you, you know, those are things that ultimately are going to replace the conventional way of hey, we're gonna con- we're gonna position ourselves from an awareness ploy, you know, to to, to try to generate as many people to. Try to understand who we are. I think you know. At the end of the day, those individual connections you have with other people is really what what drives you know adoption rates, and that's really what you know. That's really what drives growth hacking. That's really what is is sort of replacing a lot of this mass conventional marketing or advertising that 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 uh, that's existed for a long period of time. Everything is is niche now. It doesn't need to tip. On a mass scale, it's better to start it with a small amount of influential people, and then it tips later as word of mouth picks up. You know, there's there's an, there's a variety of you know other examples that um, you know we can point to in terms of you know pretty much every big social network has used growth hacking in that respect. They never started out big; they started out with a few people joining it, and then of course. Hey, you know, get your friends to know about this particular platform or here's an offer you can have that obviously if you, you know, tell four other people about. I mean, Uber grew a lot that way too by basically saying, you know, we'll give you a percentage off your next ride if you tell more friends about the service. I mean, all of it is driven on this word of mouth. Mm-hmm. That that conventional advertising can't really you know, it doesn't. You don't drive word of mouth when you have conventional advertising. What what drives word of mouth is people saying, "Hey, did you see that silly commercial?" But you don't really always think about the company behind those commercials. At the end of the day, you may laugh about it, but does it really drive any, you know, conviction? Does it really get any purpose instilled in 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 you know in in people? So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, like Pokemon Go, I. It's not yeah. Like they needed to advertise. They suddenly got everybody talking about it and using it. And it was a, a, it's a great product. Let me ask uh, one other question before we start to wrap up. In one section of the book entitled, again, another bomb thrown, <laughs> The End of the Marketing Department. Oh, yeah. You state, and I quote, many marketing professionals who write books usually assume that all readers are permanent workers. That's right. This isn't one of those books. Explain what you mean there.
0: Well, I mean, you know, we can't write things now without thinking about how the economy is changing around us. I mean, I just got back from a trip to a conference where I think the room, you could hear a pin drop when I said not one politician is talking about the fact that many jobs will be automated and many jobs will be temporary. You will basically work almost like the film industry worked for many years hey, we need you on this particular job. It's going to be four months. You're good at this particular specialty. You come in, you work with the team collaboratively, you work in some type of interactive or virtual space or physical space, you do the gig, and then you're done and you move on to another deployment. And that's a really interesting world that we don't talk about because we don't necessarily have all the austerity programs set up for where the economy is moving but you don't really have a lot of permanent positions that exist you know at a lot of these companies that I'm seeing even in you know more more and more you just have a lot of like vendor positions you have a lot of temporary positions I mean if you think about it the agency world is a temporary type of position because agencies are hired not even with AOR you know agency of record uh, models anymore they're hired to do a specific job and when they're done with those results It's like, okay, we're done with that project, You know, bill us and thank you very much for the work you've done. So everything is temporary now and it requires a lot more people to to take on a lot more work. But it also allows people to come in who aren't very close to a project. This is where you get rid of that hierarchical system so you can have people who come in from the outside and say, wait a minute. You know, have you been? You've been doing this, you know, in a way that might not be the best. It mm-hmm. might not be the most customer centric. It might not really tap into what's what's necessary. And when you get too close to projects or, or companies, or are you're you're at them for a very long time, pe- people have a tendency of getting very stale. They don't have it. They don't have a sense of purpose. They're sort of going through the motions. So I wrote a lot of this because I just I see the best marketing from people who work on things for limited periods of time. The best ideas happen there. But I also wrote it because I just think, you know, from an economic standpoint, we really are moving toward this temporary or do-it-yourself or gig economy, mm-hmm. uh, and that's fortunate or unfortunate depending on how we look at it. Again, that remains to be seen. But that's uh, how where that it's going that is how it's going i mean i mean i have friends now that work you know six different gigs um because that's just how they make ends meet you know they're 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 not they're not permanent employees uh they they may run their own sort of consulting firms they may work at an agency they might be hired by a company to work for you know a 10 month period i mean these are things that you know, that we all have to face, not just marketers, but, but really everyone. But I think in the, in the field of marketing, we're, we're starting to see it a lot more.
1: Now, I know I said that was the last question about the book, but I can't resist. There's just one more, and I mean it this time. One more <laughs> question, and it, I want you to explain the following. Disruptive marketers don't create content, and they don't produce viral videos. They strike the match that gets everyone else to ignite. That's right. Explain that.
0: If you think about a symphony, you know you are not necessarily a player. You're the conductor. You're the one that gets up and says, okay, here's where we're going to go with this particular song. And marketers now need to understand that when they work for a company or a brand and they build their own content that content, much like advertising, is highly ignored because it's overbranded. And people just don't like branded content because they know they're trying to be advertised to. They know they're trying to be played with.
1: But Although I, I would argue that I, I like content from various companies more than I would ever pay attention to their advertising.
0: Yes, that is true. And I think, there, I think there are companies that are going you know a different route now where they're actually doing things that are more exciting, that don't look like advertising and that people are paying attention to. But smarter marketers are basically inciting or striking that match, so to speak, where others are really doing the work for them by creating that word of mouth, mm-hmm. whether it's through user-generated content, something that involves their product, which acts as a form of marketing if you think about it. Like when I watch videos that have a person that is showcasing a song that they did and I can see the computer they're using, the laptop that they're using in the actual creation, whether you want to or not, that's an advertisement for that product right then and there because you can actually visually see it. They don't need to talk about it, but you can see like, oh, wait a minute, they're creating that on... You know, a MacBook Air or one of the new HP laptops or whatever it might be. That that goes a lot further than some of the things that I think, you know, we as marketers think will work in terms of like this over branding. So it requires marketers now to think about like, well, what is the what is the, for lack of a better description, riot you want to incite? both online and offline that gets people really excited about talking about your service, your product, your utility whatever it might be. And this also goes from, you know, this this is involved in B2B products just as much as consumer products because when I talk about this people have a tendency of saying, you know, that will work for consumer products but not really business to business but <laughs> cuz
1: <'Cause> we're different. <laughs>
0: Because we're different, and I'm like, you know, the social web has obliterated the yeah. whole B2B versus B2C divide, and um, and and uh, you know, people who work in B2B are still people, and they're, and they actually spend sixty percent more when uh, with a company that they feel emotionally connected to. So I actually, you know, think a lot of B2B companies, you know, need to not just concentrate on what their product does, but you know, what is their purpose in the world? Yeah. What are, and, they, what are they here for?
1: Uh huh. And there was a story, uh, a study from Gallup a couple years ago I read about, and they were explaining that B2B is actually much more emotional than B2C. Yes. You hire the wrong roofer, that's your problem. You know, you buy the <laughs> wrong car, but it, you, you B2, make a B2B purchase, that affects. Maybe your current job, your future earnings, if you make the wrong choice, yep. perhaps the uh, future uh, viability of that company. B2B, I would argue, is much more emotional. And yet people say, oh, no, that's very linear, very logical, very analytical. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> And and the thing too is B2B is actually set up better to be, you know, more of a social business than B2C because you can talk you want to talk to the people who work at those companies. And I always find it interesting when B2B companies are still like, Yeah, we don't really have a presence for our employees on, you know, LinkedIn. And it's like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> What do you wait people want to know who you are so they can ask you questions. B2B is almost like a consultant consultancy type gig now. You need to be a consultant to every company that is thinking about using your services or that is currently using your services. I I think it's I think it's interesting that you still have a lot of these companies that just, you know, are trying to still sell as you said Doug like in a linear fashion.
1: Yeah, and they are still trying to control the message. Like they can control The match yeah (laughs) it's 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 out or they can control their brand and they can control all the messaging so let's wrap up jeffrey if readers took only one thing away from the book what would you hope it would be well
0: i think the big one is is you know how do you constantly stay curious which is easier said than done Let's be honest. I mean, you know, it's it's easy for me to say, "Hey, be," you know, everyone can learn curiosity, and I do believe that. But you know, you might be in a position where you're not around people who are instilling that in you. Mm -hmm. So, how do you actually reverse engineer that and start to instill that in them, so that they're looking at things from you know an 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 eyes wide open viewpoint. I think, you know, the curiosity factor and 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 almost thinking like my 4-year-old daughter thinks again is really important. You know, she wants to be both a unicorn and a scientist when she grows up. And of course, I tell her, "Yeah, you can you can be both of those because that type of imagination is what is sorely lacking in a lot of business infrastructure now." Again, because of the, "Hey, this is the way it's always been done. This is how we get our best results." So, you know, I, I think that curiosity factor and and really always asking the question, you know, what if is, is, is really important when you sit down and try to figure out, you know, hey, what do we want to do next when it comes to, you know, a, a new product or service that we have or, you know, what your business's place is in the world. I mean, people really want to know more about what is a business going to give back to the world more than ever. So... It's not a matter of this, you know, business as usual, you know, sort of system that we've that we've been able to skate by on for so many years. You know, there's a lot of sort of rethinking and tinkering that needs to go on. So I think if people can can leave saying, you know, hey, it's it's okay to be enthusiastically inefficient and and dream of some interesting and unique and possibly weird ideas, but that helps us stand out. I mean, that's really what I'm trying to get people to you know to, to to think think about and you know maybe think uh, outside the box and left of center.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one thing we haven't even talked about. There's a whole chapter about ethics as the new marketing, but we're not. <laughs> unfortunately, we, you're all going to have to buy the book because uh, there's, we've only scratched the surface here. But the other thing about that curiosity, Jeffrey, is that you know it may it as easily as you explain that we're dealing. In order to pull that off you've got to have a significant cultural change at that organization.
0: Yeah, and it requires a lot of tough decisions. I mean, you know, this is where management may sometimes have to say, you know, we don't have the right we don't have the right people here to instill that curiosity. How mm-hmm. do we get the right people? We don't have the are the one that I'm really really, you know, a big proponent of. We don't have enough diversity here. And when I say diversity, I mean all types of diversity, gender, racial, but also economic diversity. I mean, it's very important to not hire people who are all from Ivy League colleges, if possible. I mean, that's, you know, it's good to, you know, I even say in the book, you know, it's good to not hire people who all have MBAs. I mean, it's good <laughs> yes. to have that diversity who, of people from different experiences as well, because that's that's going to give you the best ideas. And I think... You know, sometimes management's going to have to really figure out. You know, are you know, do we have the right team here to make it happen? And you know, borrow from a sports analogy. You know, look at the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I'm saying this as a Cavs fan. My wife's originally from Cleveland. You know, they never had the right team forever. I mean, as long as their existence, they never really had the right team. Even when they got to. The finals, all those years, and even this past year, I was like, they don't really have the right team. I just don't think it's going to happen. Golden State has a better culture.
1: Did you say that to your wife?
0: I did, and I almost—I think—I think think she locked me out of the house one night. Well, (laughs) she should. (laughs) But you know, the culture of of Cleveland is exactly the one that was needed because they sat down after all those losses early in the finals and said. Hey, how do we turn this around? Because we only have a short period of time to turn this around before this is over. And that culture is really what led to them winning a championship, and I think we can learn a lot from that. Like do we do, you know, ask yourself, do you have the right culture for your business model? Do you have the right people that can instill that culture? Do you have the right people who are curious who will help carry that culture? And um, you know, do you even have people who you know you may have a hard time holding on to because they are, you know, sort of constantly trying to learn new things that they may only stay at your company for a year or two. Maybe it's worth hiring them though because they may bring in some of those ideas to spark some of that imagination. In the past, it was always it was always this uh, ideology of, well, that person won't stay for a long period of time. Let's not hire them. And you'd have a very stale culture. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I think it's good to bring those people in now because they really do help sort of shake things up before they move on to new uh, endeavors. Mm
1: -hmm. What books have inspired your working career?
0: Oh, wow. Too many to name. But uh, I really love Susan Cain's book, Quiet. Mm -hmm. I am not an introvert, I'm sort of a mix, I think i mean I'm a hybrid there as well i mean I think extrovert. they're called
1: ambiverts
0: yes ambivert i'm i'm an i'm a I'm a extrovert at work, but when I come home, it's like I just want to be left alone and have quiet thoughts um I learned a lot there because you realize you realize how to taper your communication when you're talking to a variety of different people that mm-hmm. the developer who's in the in the room with you who's very shy isn't you know they're they actually do have a lot to say. They just may have a different way of communicating it. So you might get an email from them later saying like, hey, here's all the ideas I thought of. So it really helps tailor your communication when it comes to speaking with other people. I love all of Malcolm Gladwell's books. I've read all of them. Uh, the Tipping Point, uh, I love Blink, I love David and Goliath. I really love his new podcast as well, Revisionist History, I love the book "Change by Design" by Tim Brown. I, th- I think design thinking is totally underrated. I don't think it's really immersed itself in a lot of company cultures. I, I even think in the tech world, it uh, you know maybe only took hold in some companies, and then people just sort of said this isn't really you know this isn't really a good ideology. But I think when you have a lot of different people sitting around the table from diverse backgrounds, it goes back to that sort of liberal arts thinking. You know, there's a lot of good ideas that can come from that because you have a lot of different people sitting at the table bringing those ideas mm. to fruition.
1: Yeah, those are great. Uh, and we'll make sure to link those up in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Adam Grant's Originals. I haven't cracked
0: that open. I know that uh, just came out recently. And then there's uh, the book. Um, the Third Wave by Steve Case. Mm, mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting book because the argument he makes there is that partnership is really the way that you're go- we're going to build everything in the in the next 15 years, and I. I believe that. I think you know. Even being at Microsoft, the old ideology under Steve Ballmer was, you know, the the, the video developers, developers, developers. <laughs> right. I, I, I think you know if if under Satya Nadella, the new CEO, I think if he made a video that went viral, it would be partnerships, partnerships, partnerships. No company can can do it all on their own, and mm-hmm. I think that's where col- you know collaboration really comes. Uh, is is key. And this is why, you know, the network economy and the networks that we build are are really important, not only because we jobs might be temporary or do it yourself, but you have the ability to network with others to make things
1: happen that uh, you you can't make happen on your own. Mm. Very well said. Jeffrey, how best can listeners learn more about you uh, and your book and your podcast?
0: Yeah, so I'm online at uh, JeffreyColon.net. I spell spell that. uh, Yeah, because I spell my name with a G. uh, So it's G E O F F R E Y C O L O N.net. And from there, I list every single social channel that I'm on. I really like to talk to people in real time. So if they want to talk to me on Twitter or Instagram or watch my YouTube videos, I mean, I, I allow people to pretty much converse with me on whatever channel makes sense for them. And uh, my podcast is called Disruptive FM, and you can find that on iTunes. And, uh, you know, I release uh, new episodes there every Friday. So we talk a a lot about different eccentric things in the marketing world.
1: Yeah. Jeffrey, at the end of each episode on the Marketing Book Podcast, we play some, some music. Would it be okay if we played some of your club music this time?
0: Absolutely, I would love that. I think that (laughs) uh, I think that would open uh, open some minds up to the fact that uh, you know we do have different lives in our past, and I'm I'm proud of that uh, era of my professional life.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the name of the book is "Disruptive Marketing: What Growth Hackers, Data Punks, and Other Hybrid Thinkers Can Teach Us About Navigating the New Normal." The author is Jeffrey Colon. Jeffrey, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug. And that closes the book on episode 83 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and access to free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. I love to hear from listeners like you. Modern marketing is moving pretty quickly. If I can help answer your questions or help point you in the right direction to get the information you need, please let me know if I can help. It's the least I can do for my listeners. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett, Or heck, just tweet me up using hashtag marketingbook. And please join us next time as we talk with John Jantz about his book, Duct Tape Selling. Think like a marketer, sell like a superstar. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. I should disclose, Jeffrey, that I have been diagnosed with a clinical condition called an overactive sense of humor. (laughs) Now, it doesn't mean I'm funny. It just means I I like to have a good time and, you know, joke around. So it would be best if uh, you behave like my wife and teenage kids and just just ignore it. Just ignore Um, it. (laughs) So, uh, I love it.